Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. All right, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another installation of the John and Jordan on Justice podcast, the second longest podcast name on the planet Earth. <laughs> but uh, we're excited to have you back. Um, and today we're just going to kind of workshop through some, uh, some, some ideas, some things that have kind of been top of mind as of late. John and I are both gearing up for a pretty busy fall when it comes to trials, which is what we love. It's a good time for our clients who have been waiting a long time. But uh, it's going to require an immense amount of sacrifice and work on our behalf and our family too. So, yeah, got uh, September's going to be a busy month. So is October, and November. But you know, it kind of seems like once everyone gets out of the summer uh, mode, uh, they they start really hitting uh, trials hard, or at least we try to. Although I feel like we doesn't even get a break during summer. We're still trying to try as many cases as we can. So. We've got a couple of uh, interesting cases coming up. Um, we've got a negligent security case involving a property owner in, in Miami-Dade County. We have a very violent uh, motor vehicle collision in Seminole County involving a traumatic brain injury and other orthopedic injuries for a minor child. I believe she was 11 at the time of the accident. She's now a, a teenager, so that that's going to trial in Seminole County. And then we have uh, another one in Miami, which is kind of an interesting case because... You know, it's a motor vehicle collision with a, you know, kind of a hit and run passenger that caused a crash, fled the scene, victim, you know, uh, independent eyewitnesses chase him, get a license plate. Um, and they, we kind of worked their way back to where it came from, the parking lot. And that independent eyewitness went back every single day until that car was returned, took a picture um, and said, this is what it is. We hired a cell phone expert, did all these kind of things, and it's very interesting because they're, it's a circumstantial evidence-only case, and so I feel more like a prosecutor than a... Well, you know, just thinking about that last case, the one with the hit and run, that actually just got me thinking about how important having a quality investigator or investigators can be on the appropriate case. I mean, you're not going to have a need for them in every case, but more often than not, they're going to add value and probably expand the scope of evidence that's available to you to prove your claim so like in that case <clears throat> we thought we had a pretty good case to begin with but we were missing one of the drivers right at first it was just going to be how the defendant who whose vehicle ultimately impacted our client's car what he did wrong essentially when somebody else cut him off or was going the wrong way blew a light whatever because yeah. we didn't have that other car but through use of an investigator uh he was able to track down that vehicle and then we got the cell phone expert to really corroborate the cell site data to say no you were there. It's not a coincidence. And that's not the first time we've had like a gotcha moment, so to speak, in, a, in preparing a case like, wow, this is a game changer. We've had him in other cases, like the hot soup case we, we talked about months ago, mm -hmm. where you mm -hmm. send them in kind of undercover and all of a sudden they unearth all of this really favorable evidence that without it, honestly, that case probably never settles. And if, if it does, nowhere near policy limits. And if we had to try it, it's nowhere as strong. And so I just think <clears throat> you know, I think people are hesitant to spend money, especially on the plaintiff side, or not hesitant, but they're cautious. They want to be conservative with what they're allocating and, and fronting, and that makes total sense. But you got to really see the the risk reward. I mean, the risk is uh, you, you hire a modestly priced investigator, you send them out to do a job, and they come back up with basically nothing. 
what did you lose? You probably lost at most a thousand bucks, maybe two. So often it's less. It's usually a couple hundred. Yeah, maybe. if that. Yeah, if that. I mean, no. a lot of times it's just something short because if they can go and, you know, you'll you'll never know the importance of obtaining, you know, the like the things that you described, things that don't exist. They have like an expiration date, right? Right. We know CAD calls, the 911 calls, the dash cam, the body cam of the officers, the the surrounding areas of the crash, you might have various businesses that have surveillance that'll catch stuff. And if you don't check and get those within 30 days, they'll be gone. Sometimes it's less, but usually I think... Often 30, less, yeah. Yeah, I think, it's, I think 30 days is a pretty good number. So you just got to get out there and hire and some, you know, we're thankful to have someone that can get out there and... You know, hit the ground. But I mean, these things can be game changers. I think that's my point here. It's not about like, I have a theory. I'm pretty sure prove it up. Maybe there's some additional evidence that further bolsters what I already know. I'm talking about things that are unearthed for the first time. You know, it's not like a new witness on a movie uh, usually, but it can be. Like if you're suing a corporation, maybe it's a former employee, whatever. I'm just saying it's one of these things that I think people don't uh, truly appreciate until it's too late. Or if you continue to practice in a manner where, hey, I never use an investigator. You almost don't know what you're missing. So you can probably be effective, but how effective are you really if you're leaving out a whole bunch, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You got to make sure to, you know, pepper, not just pepper the file, but just like build your case from day one. And that will help you when you get to where we're at, which is three trials, which, you know, the way we try case, the way we litigate, prepping and preparing all these cases at once, you know, it gets a, it gets a pretty big task. So, you know, I took I had two expert depots today, um, prepared all last night and all day yesterday. You know, and it can be it can be exhausting, especially. Well, let's talk all... about let's talk about the the feature of your first expert depot today. So this was on one of the cases that is coming up for trial, the the car accident case involving the minor. This is one of the defense medical experts. He's an orthopedic expert. This is a pretty familiar type of uh, defense expert witness that we deal with. I mean, they differ in who they are and their approach, but generally we get the idea. They're going to come in and say you know, they're not hurt or if they are, it wasn't causally related. That's what they do every single time. Fine, we get it. But this one today, the feature was this guy, every, almost every answer began with, well, you have a video of it. You have a video of it. And what he's referring to is a video of the compulsory medical examination that he took because in Florida, to the extent the defendant's permitted to do a CME, we in turn are permitted to have a court reporter and a videographer present. And so the law in Florida basically is, and I'm crudely summarizing it, but that's our work product unless and until the time we want to use it at trial. So it's much like surveillance video for the defendants in that way. They can hold on to it forever and never tell us about it if they don't want to use it. Similarly here, we can do the same. But the difference is we never know when our clients are being surveilled. The defense always knows when we have video of a CME because they're the ones who coordinated it. So it's this weird dynamic where only the doctor, uh, our client, and a court reporter and videographer were in the room when it happened. But the doctor was one of them. But nevertheless, they show up at depositions like, well, you have the video. Play the tape. I don't remember. Knowing full well that we're not obligated to do so. And today that really made for an interesting dynamic. I mean, I was there watching but you were the one asking. And I don't know, how does that feel when you're trying to get an, an easy answer from a, a witness and he's almost deliberately injecting an issue that you know can't the jury can't hear? Well, well, I mean, you know, the point is, is that these defense medical experts, you know, they don't want to say something or say they did something that they didn't do on the video, right? Now, we know, we watched it. We know what they did or didn't do. We know what they asked or didn't have asked. So, but... 
I like much like surveillance, don't want to give them the benefit. I'm like, you have an opinion. You said, you know, a specific example in this case was like that the range of motion in the neck was normal. Okay, how'd you measure that? Well, I eyeballed it. Okay, did you use any type of inclinometer, inclinometer, or ganeometer, any any measurement device? No. Warm up exercises? No. More than three and take the meat? You know, no. What directions did you measure? Forward and backward, meaning flexion, extension, lateral, side to side, and rotational. He's like, I don't know. I will defer to the video. I was like, so as we sit here today, the basis for your opinion that she had full range of motion, you can't even tell me what ranges you're, yeah, yeah, I can't tell you. I have no idea. Did you take notes? Did you write this down? So it, so it, you know, I went through basically just his examination, you know, did you do? This guy's been doing him since the seventies. I'm not saying that. Uh, in any 19, sense of exaggeration, I mean, he's really been doing it since the seventies, right? So he knows that. Yeah, he knows that when he's retained as a medical expert, he's going to be asked by the opposing counsel, "What did you do? Why did you do it? What was the data, and what's the meaning of it?" He knows that every single time, but nevertheless, he's still showing up all these decades later and acting like, "Well, I don't really remember. Why don't you tell me what's on that video? I can't see." And I think what really bothers me about it, um, because that's not going to play well to a jury to the extent they ever heard it. And it just makes him look forgetful or any of these witnesses forgetful or sloppy because they're not taking notes contemporaneously when they do it. But I think what really bothers me at my core is when the shoe is on the other foot, meaning when mm -hmm. the defense counsel and the insurer have surveillance of our client, we don't know it even exists, right? So the defense in a CME, they always know the video exists. So that's why they can throw it in our face and answers. But in surveillance, we often don't know it exists. But what do they do anyway? They show up having the benefit, the defense are having the benefit of looking at all of this surreptitious surveillance, and then they tee up questions for our clients to trap themselves, even when they're being honest, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, we had that infamous case that we shall speak no further of about where, like, questions about, oh, I, did you relocate? You did? Did you move? What did you do in the moving process? Did you lift anything? Because it turns out they had surveilled him and his wife while they relocated, so they knew everything that he did, what vehicle he drove, what he lifted, didn't, et cetera, and that was devastating to the case. So it's not really fair. Uh, and I know you and I talk about this a lot, whether or not in federal court, because of initial Rule 26 disclosures and the continuing duty to supplement, whether there's like this affirmative obligation for them to disclose that in advance of a depot. I think that there should be, but Florida law doesn't have like a clean case or rule of procedure on it. And uh, I, for one, am kind of tired of it. It leads to what? Let, let's just be real. It leads to gamesmanship, period, end of story, at least to gamesmanship, and it leads to needless litigating over what every defendant seems to love to call fraud on the court, when it's really just misremembering or like slight inconsistencies. It's just mm -hmm. a, a setup game, and I really don't like it because like there's a there's a threshold that I have a tolerance of expectation for bullshit that's going to go on in litigation, people pushing papers, probably justifying their existence in billable hours, but then there's this line where it's like, stop calling my client a liar and a fraud in a written pleading in a public record and trying to sully their reputation, at least with a judge who's going to have to rule on that when you're the one who you didn't give him a fair shake or her a fair shake, show them the tape and then be like, Hey, okay. You know, uh, if, if you want it the same way for CME, you know, so I don't know. That's just my soapbox moment, but yeah, pretty could, tired. You imagine, could you imagine the plaintiff being like, I'll defer to uh, whatever surveillance you may or may not have of me. Yeah. Could you the defense would that? flip out and be like, this is not a meaningful depot, I'm blah, like, blah, 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 sanctions. I think you might have surveillance of me, so I'll defer to whatever's on the video. Yep. Yeah, you put know. them in a box. Yeah. But and that's not that, really what we want either. Like, both sides no. don't want it. So, I, you know, they shouldn't do what they're doing now with the CME, and we shouldn't be caught by surprise, I don't think. I really don't. Um, 
<clears throat> but there's no continuing duty to disclose to supplement discovery in state court in Florida, which is, you know, I don't know. I'm, I don't practice in any other state Not but Georgia, yet. but it's you think it's coming? Uh, 100% it's coming. Yeah, you're on the rules we, committee. So, no. Yeah, it's it's coming. We're going to be, you know, I think before the work group came out with the recent rules, uh, the Supreme Court basically tasked the work group to come in and kind of shake up the rules of civil procedure with a heavy focus on sanctions. But they had already been discussions in the civil rules committee to already change to more of a rule 26 kind of base um, thing in Florida state courts where, look, we do initial disclosures. Do you have an ongoing duty to supplement? Because what's happening is what we know is we have to send updated interrogatories to ask the same thing, second updated, third updated, fourth updated. And it's like, if there's an ongoing duty, you have to supplement like you do in federal court. If you've got additional medical records, you're still treating, you have a duty to keep continually updating that to the other side. And that, that really, I think, you know, we've seen that it can be good and bad. I think, I think, look, plaintiffs, I don't think it's bad for plaintiff's lawyers because we disclose everything. We give everything. Right. We don't hide anything. We give all the treatment records. It's more bad for the defense because they want to not hide what they have or not tell what they have. And, you know, the, I don't think they're gonna be able to do that anymore. And so that, that's a good thing, I think, um, to have, you know. Well, I hope it comes to pass and, and sooner rather than later, because I think the courts at the end of the day, the judges would probably be the ones that benefit the most because it would cut down on a ton of like, I won't say frivolous, well, it needless discovery litigation and motion practice. I'm talking like needless, like probably 30% of any given discovery motion is something that A, probably should have been resolved if lawyers just picked up a phone instead of sending emails with each other. And B, even if it's something they're like, well, maybe there's a good faith basis, you know, to have differing views, uh, just short, sort it out by being like, well, why don't you just give it anyway? Because in federal court, you would have to, right? Like, right. Like this whole, you know, you didn't serve updated discovery. It's like, or whatever. That's just one narrow example. But it's like, Updated discovery. Just give me what the fuck I asked. You know what I asked for from day one. You know, yeah. just that's sitting hard, on it. That's a hard task for everyone. I mean, they remember. Remember, they get paid to work and fight. We get paid to win. So I'm in here to win. I'm not here to fight. So I will fight. But you know, if they're if we're going to court on the same objections, the same thing, the same discovery, same non-responsiveness, all of those issues, then you know, I mean, here we are. You know, still doing the same thing. So it's just on. It'll be it'll be rectified. I think. Well, good. another thing, now that we're talking, now I'm thinking about it, like uh, federal versus state court, that kind of is, drives me crazy about state court at times, especially in Florida. It's not like Georgia. Georgia is, I find Georgia as compared to Florida to be infinitely more amicable uh, and professional in terms of how people resolve their issues. Rare is the, is the occasion where people are just running to court for no reason. Florida seems, seems to me, unfortunately, to be the opposite of that. And that's what I grew up knowing so when i first started practicing in georgia i was like what's going on here but uh it's a, it's a welcome breath of fresh air but the point i'm making about uh, federal and then florida state court is hearings how often john are you given a, a hearing in federal court on a pretrial motion let's be real barely rarely ever although although my very first motion i ever argued as an attorney was in federal court first one i mean that's the he let me. I mean, I'd been a lawyer like a month or two. Argued in in front of ch uh, Chief Judge down here in Southern District of Florida, uh, Federico Moreno. Or Moreno. It was on a motion to dismiss. He granted an oral argument, and I'll never forget because I I I don't even think I had been to federal court. Maybe I had, but I was there. My the partner that I was working for was there. It was just a solo, and basically him and me and a paralegal and a bookkeeper. Um. And his, he had appellate counsel there. He was like, nah, let him argue. 
you know. <laughs> so I'm arguing against like a senior partner at this at a big defense firm, right? How bad could it be? So, oh man, what he it was like he cited what was the Was this like a cruise line case? No. It was a cruise line case. So yeah, when I first started, obviously I was doing all federal maritime litigation and it was a cruise line case. I think it was a celebrity cruises case. And I think we had it was like a it was like a negligent misrepresentation about something in addition to an injury side. And he was kind of focused on and I remember he goes, "Give me a case. Give me a case." Right? And I cited to him a case, and it was like it was it was Alacoa versus the city of Coral Gables or something. And he was yeah, like, or Alaco- something. You said it's that case a lot. I bet it is because it's seared into your memory. Yeah, it's no because I remember because he goes Alacoa versus. He's like, what are they running cruises over there in the Coral Gables waterway? Right? <laughs> yeah, that was his response. And I and I said, oh, he goes, Welcome no, give give show. me a cruise case, give me a cruise case. I don't have one. And he goes. Here they are, these plaintiffs' lawyers, always saying we don't give them an opportunity to have oral argument in front of a in federal court. And here I give them an opportunity, and they're not prepared. And I was oh like, and what's interesting? What's interesting about that? Kind of like a teaching moment. I think he granted it, gave us leave to amend, and then we put it in. The, he actually ruled in the pleadings and allowed us to do it. I found a case that was his case on this issue. Not just denying the motion to dismiss, but actually denying summary judgment in front of the defense, being like, this goes to a jury. So it was very. Um, so he knew was, what he wanted to hear. He, he yeah. knew what case he was looking at here. You know, and, and I and I think about it. I'm like, man, if I had that case, you know, I'm a proud of moment. I was like, well, judge, there is a case out of a very learned jurist uh, of the Southern District of Florida. You might know him. I'd be like, who? Who was it? It was you, Your Honor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, inside the case, and not only at summary judgment instead of a motion to dismiss, which is actually a, um, I think, a higher standard. So, you know, very. But, yeah, but even since that day, I mean, how no. often does it happen? I mean, no, no, I've never, with the exception of discovery disputes. But federal judges, they're like, you don't even write motions. They're like, just cite the issue, come in, show up, and you might write something or a, like case citation. That's it. There is no. Yeah, most things page. are ruled on. Yeah, like I just, I feel like if you're, they're going to do an oral argument or or a motion practice, it's basically you got like one page, write your issues, no bullshit, no more of this like. Oh, it's because I feel like the, the if you have more time and more space, it leads to just casting aspersions to the other side. And I don't, I don't, I must be a an easy target. You know, we're having all these people attacking my integrity and character. And you know, my favorite one was that I, you know, I'm, I'm representing in a in a in a particular case, and I got said that I won't do something because I'm on a contingency fee. Like that makes a difference. I'm like, oh, you're right. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to do extra work. I just want to win. Their own devices. People pissed off will come up with all kinds of crazy bullshit. I mean, that's the reality of it. But you know, yeah. don't you feel like? <clears throat> don't you feel like at times our written motions in state court are like, we're basically just talking to our other side. Like you almost feel like because judges have very limited resources. I am aware of that. Very limited time is one of those resources. So they can't read everything. Sometimes we get these exhaustive filings on like a really simple thing. 11 pages for like a two-page thing. So they can't read everything. But sometimes I feel like we're spending all this time research and writing just to preserve an appellate record because a lot of judges, it feels like they're not reading much of anything, showing up to calendar, like, all right, tell me what's going on, and kind of like not winging it. They're doing their best based on what they hear to rule based on the law that they know. But it just feels like 
man, I was like screaming into the void. I have all this good case law that I could never get out in a five minute motion hearing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and hopefully you, you hope that they read it. But then like sometimes you just wonder, like, is it is it even being read? Whereas in federal court, everything's being read. You may not win, but there's no question that it's all being read, digested, interpreted, thought about. And then they're explaining their orders like you don't even really get summary orders uh, in federal court. You're saying like granted or denied. That's it. State court. That's pretty common, you know. I've now, you know, I have a mixed, obviously, look, it depends on the judge you have, because I think there's a lot of judges that read a lot, you know, I mean, we had, you know, a judge, and, and I think if you get outside of the South Florida community, because I think the work, the, 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 the docket here <clears throat> is incredibly busy, right? You know, Miami, right. Broward, Palm Beach, incredibly busy dockets, the judges have... I, I don't I don't know how they quite frankly I don't know how they manage it you know they don't have the big support staff like they do in federal court so but when you get into the, some of these neighboring counties you know you get over into Naples you know Lee County um, you know some of the smaller jurisdictions I think they do a really good job of being able to read and be prepared we had a case where a judge it, it, he bifurcated the uh, a trial or bifurcated the case between pleadings and parties we filed a motion for reconsideration. Didn't even have an opportunity to set it for hearing, but mailed it to the judge. He sua sponte gr- granted the order without hearing, saying yeah. that I agree with you. I'm, I'm based upon what I just read. I violated some binding precedent, vacated his order, and reset the matter, the original matter, for hearing. So it's like, I think it just it depends on where you are, their current workload, and there's a, you know there's a lot of good judges, but then there are some that say they don't read anything. So it's yeah. like, and that's and that's why. You know, because our system is so dependent on oral arguments that a motion really can not matter. You know, you can just be like, they failed to respond to interrogatory two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and they should be compelled and it's this government and they need it. And then you go in and then just argue to the judge. You know, so I think that I think that process lends itself to the potential to not. But but when they got so many cases, I mean, they're doing their best. And so yeah, I don't of course. You know, especially because people set things that should be special set with like a 15 page motion on motion counter. Motion counter should be oh, I know. five minutes, That's, you know, people love to people sure love seems it. like that. At least. But you're right. I, I shouldn't pay with such broad strokes because there are many judges in many jurisdictions that definitely read everything. I'm, I guess I'm speaking about the majority of time in Florida state court. And again, it's not even necessarily the fault of any any judge in particular or anything like that. It's just a matter of resources and the realities of life, especially in the busier dockets. But it's it's hard because you want to get heard. You want to be heard for what you have to say, not just like how would this judge generally treat this issue, you know? Yeah. And and for those of you who aren't watching on the video, I've got to give a shout out to Justin because I'm over here eating food, taking a drink, coughing at times. And you don't know this, but he's cutting my mic off. So you as the members listening don't have to uh, to hear that. Oh. <laughs> but I want to I want to segue a little bit, Jordan. I know we talked about you know, cases and being in trouble. What, what we're seeing and I want to talk about is interesting thing about non-binding arbitration, right? That we Excuse have, me, I'm going to go kill myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, so we see this, this referral we're getting in a lot of cases to non-binding arbitration, which there is a rule of civil procedure in Florida. Our firm has actually challenged the constitutionality of it. Um, we've had judges punt on them. We had a judge... Deny it. Two judges so far have ruled on the merits and denied it. One, we settled the case, but didn't so didn't take in a uh, an interlocutory review. 
but we might in this other one. Maybe, maybe not. But we're you right. know, actually no. I, we were not because we we just arbitrary. I think we're just going to wait. This judge is he's super fair, and I don't want to. You know, there's a strategic disadvantage to pissing somebody right. off, taking a writ on them or something. You know what I mean? Um, we already had yeah. to do one in this case, and we were defending his rulings, and we did so successfully. So, but in general, having just gone through it, is it my my issue with non-binding arbitration? Uh, well, there are issues, but my primary issue is not that it's a form of ADR and fuck it, I want to go to trial at all costs. This is a waste of time. I'm not a ridiculous. I'm not a ridiculous person. Like there can be value in any of these ADR tools. My problem with it is, it's it lends itself to just counsel proffering to someone that basically serves as a mediator, typically ninety percent of their day anyway. And if that's all we're doing, then just go to mediation because otherwise. You have to make this strategic decision. Um, how well prepared do I want to be? How thorough do I want to be with this arbitrator? Am I going to tell him or her what a witness might say? Am I going to give him or her a transcript to read? Am I going to give him or her a video clip of what they said? And if so, am I going to vary the mediums depending on witnesses? Like you get into this world where it's like, and then do I want to reveal all of the things that I might highlight at trial and highlight them now for opposing counsel? You know, mediation is not like they get like an opening and then you go to your separate rooms. The people right. that actually know the case, they know the money and they can come in and make a decision. So that's my concern. It's it's too much like a mini trial where you're not really rewarded. There's very little upside, I think, for being super thorough. You're, you end up setting yourself up where the other side sees all your cards and there's no guarantee the arbitrator goes with you anyway. And typically, uh, I think perhaps unsurprisingly, one can expect the awards to probably fall in the middle between where the parties were anyway. But then let's talk about what we challenged for being unconstitutional, because this is really the elephant in the room. Under Florida state procedural law, a judge has the authority to refer the parties to mediation or arbitration, non-binding, or both. And they always do mediation, and in some jurisdictions now they're doing both. Well, when you get to non-binding arbitration, the statute reads much the same as the statutes for mediation do. No harm, no foul. The difference is, if you go to mediation and it's not fruitful, it results in an impasse, you get your day in court. Nobody's penalized, so to speak, except for the time spent doing it. But there's no actual punitive component. Whereas with non-binding arbitration, whatever the arbiter's award is, if one of the parties still wants to go to jury trial, they have to file a motion for trial de novo, it's called. Fine. You get 20 days to do it. But if you then go to trial, it, it, turns, it turns the arbiter's award into a proposal for settlement or offer of judgment, whatever your jurisdiction calls it, where if you don't beat that number by a certain threshold, you're now at risk for being taxed for the other party's costs and fees uh, because you didn't accept the arbiter's award and then you wasted everybody's time, so to speak, going to trial. Well, that's crazy to me because we have a constitutional right to trial by jury. So you're essentially penalizing my uh, exercise of that right. And that's essentially the basis of our constitutional challenge that most judges punt and and turn the other way on but a few now are taking it head on and just being like it's it's constitutional you know so one day we'll get that up on appeal but that's my concern and by the way this is not an indictment in any way on the men and women of the bar who serve as arbiters i mean they're working their asses off and you know and they're also trying to make a living and i think they're all really doing their best to, to find justice so this is is nothing to do with them much the same way it wouldn't have to do with a mediator Many of them serve in dual roles. It's just the process in general doesn't lend itself to trying that hard. It's almost like if you really want a jury trial and you don't want to show the other side your hand, you're almost supposed to go in 
and like hope the arbiter gives you a low number. <laughs> so when you do have to go to trial, the PFS number, so to speak, is is low enough where you don't feel like you might not beat it. It's just this weird dynamic that, you yeah. know, I just don't know how many of these people are snapping off arbiters awards. Like, yeah, I'll take it. I just, I don't know statistically, but I'd imagine that many are still moving for trial de novo. So it's like, well, how, what is the point of it? Delays things so much, you know? Yeah, we were we were on a trial docket. We were number eleven, and we just got a random order that said you're going to non-binding arbitration, and put our case <clears> on like an inactive docket. <laughs> right, and you so just like, help. I'm at trial. I'm ready to go to trial, and here you are. Now I got to go sit and, you know. Well, work. how do you explain that to a, a client also who's been waiting, 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 thinking about trial, especially the client who's already mediated, been told by the defense that like they're a liar, their case sucks, it's all pre-existing. Or my favorite, which is like, we're so sorry that this happened to you. Just know that. And then they go on to tell them why they're going to lose and they're pieces of shit. So they've already been through that. Now you got to tell them, hey, there's just another hurdle we got to go over. This one's even more extensive. Um, I'll tell you, um, one of these non-binding arbitrations, we didn't have our client present for our presentation, planning not to have her present throughout because it's just like, you know, she's been through it already with mediation. And the other side kind of flipped out. Like, where's your client? We need your client. Like, they need to hear what we have to say. Trust me, other side. Did they, they say don't. that in the arbitra in the arbitration? Yes, and yes, and like honestly, and we had already mediated the case. Already mediated, and I was about to go on this whole thing, but she heard what she had to say. Mediation, and there's no legal requirement just to be there. There's no legal requirement; she even has to be a trial. And I just stopped, and I was like, you know, whatever. We can we can make the accommodation because it's just easier than the alternative. But it, it's it's literally a waste of time. And like again, if the shoe was on the other foot. Um, let me let me see a defense lawyer's reaction uh, if I insist that I copy them or that I that, that like their client, the defendant is on phone calls we have or that their client, you know, often it's just an insurance adjuster in the room, I guess is what I'm saying. Like even at arbitration, um, obviously the defendant can be there, maybe should be there. I don't know, because they're you know the ones financially who are at risk. But often like in mediations, whatever, it's like an insurance adjuster. It's like, no, make sure the defendant's there, too. You know, yeah. if you make really care. There. But the thing is, I don't. I don't give a shit because I know the defendant's not making the big decision, but like, I don't know, to puff your chest out and kind of insist that my client needs to hear your, your shit. I don't know. That's Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't need other lawyers to just try to like, I'm going to intimidate your client. I feel so bad. Right. Intimidation. We lose. Right. I'm going to come after your fees. I'm going to ruin your life. You're never going to win. It's going to go on for two years. I'm like, shut up. How about my client waits in the other room? You talk to me, you know? Yeah. So I can, you know, mute you guys out. It's a waste of time. And, you know, that's we, we've seen, I don't know, I've been seeing a lot recently of just, you know, like we have, like, I don't think what we have is arrogance, right? I think we are confident in our abilities. I work hard. I prepare. But I've been seeing so much arrogance of, like, just taking absurd positions and like pounding your ch their chest yeah, over. Yeah, which is going to be to the detriment of your client. And when they're hired and retained by an insurance company, I mean, this this kind of stuff is, you know, and, and you know, that when they talk about like limiting bad faith litigation and limiting all this kind of things, I, all I keep thinking about, the people that's going to lose are the people that are being defended by the insurance company. Yeah. Right? You know, it's, it's not going to help them. It's going to hurt those people that had these bravado lawyers hired by the insurance company pounding their chest and then they go get their teeth kicked in 
yep. which is going to happen. It's going to, you know, and we'll be back on this show talking about how it happened, just like we said it's going to happen. And I'm going to send the emails like, you know, that Nick Rowley used to talk about that said, I told you so, dot, dot, dot. Like, that's it. I told you. Yep. Here it is, just like I said it was going to happen. And I'm going to send those emails from a position of confidence and a position of arrogance, saying, like, I keep telling yeah, you. But it, shouldn't, it shouldn't get to that, though. I think, like, you want to hear something ridiculous or think about yeah. something ridiculous. Sometimes I sit back and I think, when is the last time I had a dispute where the law was involved? Not just, like, some ticky-tack thing, like, a position on what the law is and stands for. When's the last time I had a dispute with a defense lawyer that I convinced him or her to, to withdraw their position, change their position, agree not to pursue a position? Because they read what I wrote or they, they heard what I said, reconsider and they're like, you're right. Bro, do I always know everything? Far from it. Am I wrong? All the time. But plenty of times I'm right on pretty black and white legal issues and they fight anyway. That drives me crazy. And yeah. like, just so that we're being like totally honest, I mean, just literally the, what's today, Wednesday, Monday or Tuesday of this week, I changed my position on a case on an issue that came up in Georgia about amending pleadings, whether or not we could mm -hmm. raise a certain type of loss and consortium claim. The other side was like, look, basically here's some considerations to think depending on the timing of this and that. And uh, we don't think that there's a good faith basis to amend at this point. I stopped, I re-researched re re the issue agreed with them and before the day was out sent them an email saying thanks for putting that to bring that to my attention we won't pursue that path crisis averted if i had just interpreted that like well a defense lawyer told me that fuck him like he must be wrong and even if not you know but i don't i don't feel the love on the other side man i feel like people yeah. are threatened like when i send an email and i'm really coming from a place of like hey trying trying to actually avoid needless waste of time here like literally in everybody's best interest, the court included to stop fucking around and wasting time. I'll send emails with bullet points. I'll send the case themselves. I'll give a list of citations. It seems like none of that shit works. And I think that's a big problem. You know, yeah. it's just a big, big problem. Yeah. And what, and what just happened because they didn't take your position. They got sanctioned, had to pay for it. Yeah, I, mean, I know, but I don't even want that. I even told the court, like, he's what well, he was about to start nitpicking. How, all right, well, how much do they owe you in front? So just fucking tell them to pay it to charity because it's really not about that. I'm not in it for the $1,800 in sanctions awards. I'm really not. But like yeah. the idea that I literally sent an email and said, here's the case law. You're wrong. It's not debatable. What you did is wrong. Here's a proposal where we, A, don't have to go to court, uh, and B, it costs your client less, and C, we, get, we cut to the chase. They literally wrote back, we'll think about it, then wrote back, we want a hearing. We disagree. Didn't even tell me why. Went to the hearing, spent 30 fucking minutes arguing. The judge agrees with me anyway, sanctions them, including for the 30 minutes of time that he argued wasting it. Who the fuck wins there? Yeah. So now I mean, their client had to write a check to a charity for sanctions. Who wins? Not me. I don't I care mean, that I was right from the beginning. I've just had to waste all this time. And I don't I mean, know. I'm just, I wish it could be a little easier in that regard. Yeah. You know? I mean, we, we had that issue in a case where my client came in federal court to it for in, into town for a a CME and a deposition, and then they were listing a rebuttal expert and wanted to have him examined again, which would require him to refly into town. And I said, nope, he's already come. He's not coming back. And then, you know, I did the research, and we looked at it. And sure enough, I mean, I can make an argument, but I'm going to lose. Right. So I said, you know what? It's fine. We'll bring him out. And then you know what happened? The doctor agreed to do it by Zoom. So it's like by, by conceding an issue, saving, you know, working together, you know, we were able to find common ground and actually worked out a better resolution. And then, you know, we ended up settling the case. So, so it's like there can, 
it's almost like you can gain trust and credibility from the other side of saying, look, you're right, I'm wrong, your position is correct, I don't need to fight with you about it. Yeah, but and, it should never be, like, dude, come on. We read, like, our rules of professional conduct or whatever else. I mean, how aspirational are they? Uh, they're almost exclusively aspirational because, like, so many of them about don't obfuscate in discovery, don't delay needlessly and all this kind of shit. It's like, you know what? I Denied. I, I, I wish we would all adhere to them a little bit closer, you know, uh, and make them more reality because that's, I think, honestly, where a lot of the toxicity gets baked in the cake. It's like when a sticking point arises on an issue that comes up, usually pre-trial, sometimes it's like a motion eliminate issue right before trial, and there's a dispute, and one of the sides sends the other. It's usually us being like, look, here's our position and why. And the other side's like, well, I don't give a fuck. You know, in so many words, don't care. They file their thing anyway. They're <coughs> requesting hearing dates anyway. It's like, um, I just want that to stop. Or, or, or taper down. I mean, I don't expect to convince everyone all the no, time. Man, and that's, that's where the fun's at, being a lawyer. It's like needlessly fighting about the same issues every single time. I mean, that's... I just when I wake when I come word. to a day and I'm like, wait, do I get to fight about this issue again with the same lawyers on a different case? It's amazing. Obviously, I'm that's not true, but you know, it it happens. So it happens. Well, hopefully, less over time. All right, so we do want to tell you guys we got you know kind of a it's not really an, it's like an announcement, but it's something that we're putting together for here's the firm. We have we have Terry Roberts who is um, our director of appellate practice here at the firm. And what he's been doing for us is kind of going through all of the appellate opinions. We're talking about Supreme Court, 11th Circuit, every single DCA in, in Florida to get us an idea of like some of the relevant cases that are that are happening every day, every week when they come out on, I think it's Wednesday, right, Jordan? They come out with the opinion? State courts, the district courts of appeal used to be for almost exclusively Wednesday. Now they're sporadic, but yeah. Right. I so, mean, so it's it's harder to predict, but the point is it's going to be a weekly update on all of the relevant appellate decisions, state and federal, uh, Florida-focused, personal injury-focused, uh, insurance law-focused, that, that you would need to stay up with it. And it's like, you know, just, just so that we're on the same page for everyone out there, us and the listeners, you know, there are services that do this kind of thing, like Florida Law Weekly is one I think about. They give like a daily or weekly or monthly digest. Uh, and, and, you know, many people have used those services throughout the years, but... Um, I've I've subscribed to it twice and, and unsubscribed both times. It's just not for me. Um, Terry takes a much more thorough uh, look at each case and it is explaining it, I think, in a way that's much more meaningful for us to digest and use. Uh, and I have a lot more confidence in his analysis just personally where I could take it and apply it. And, and it's so important because – so I used to try and have a habit. I guess you can't call it a habit if you break it a lot because you're so busy. But I used to strive to to do this myself. And then I would try and write down notes because, you know, I just learned better that way. And you got to stay up with the law. John, you and I have been in cases, and I don't want to dovetail too far, but where you're talking with another lawyer and they're talking at you about this case and you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's, you know, three years ago, the Florida Supreme Court ruled X or Y or whatever. You know what I mean? Stop citing 1979 case law. So this is a really good way of avoiding ever falling in that trap. You're never going to get in trouble staying sharp. You're never going to get in trouble staying on top of the law. And, you know, I, I encourage everyone, Justin, you can you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but we're going to start putting out there through our social media channels. We're going to try and put like a repository of his weekly summaries on uh, on our website. And frankly, you can just reach out and ask in the interim. But we're going to call it Terry's Takes, and they're super valuable. And, uh, you know, we're giving them away for free. There's no subscription service. 
uh, in terms of like a paid subscription service. And I think everybody can just elevate their practice, both plaintiff and defense, if you just read this and stay, like keep your finger on the pulse, basically, you know? Yeah, to add to that, so working with uh, Apricot Law on this, just to make it uh, one easy for them to find, um, that they see all the updates and archivable, right? So that, you know, Terry will probably put out 10 different um, updates per week or whatever. Um, and for, you know, when the new week comes out, they're able to find old uh, arguments or case law updates easily. Um, so just trying to be more intuitive. Uh, with yeah, it. it's like a way we can help serve the the legal community, colleagues right. on both sides of the aisle, you know, and I think there's just rising tides lifts all boats, you know. Yeah, and we're going to call it Terry's Takes. Terry's yep. Takes. That'll be that'll be his take on the case law. And, and I've already, he's been doing it for us. And I find it to be, it's one of the things when we get, uh, I'm a mem- we're a member of FJA, Florida Justice Association, and they send out their, um, I don't know if it's, a, I don't know if it's quarterly or bi-monthly, um, article or magazine which includes case law updates right right and i've always thought that was very important read the case see what's going on they also send out on fridays the fj reading file of like here's what they think an important case you should read so there's there's a lot of things to stay up to 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 speed with the with the change in the law because it could affect your cases and so we've been doing that internally we're just going to give it basically to yeah and I, but i just think like just in case you're out there like, well, i already have florida law weekly I already do this digest through a listserv this is basically every case and a little bit broader than you're probably used to and a little deeper than you're probably accustomed to in a good way. Like, you know, I feel like sometimes when you're just relying on a listserv, it's like, oh, this huge decision came out. It's like, yeah, everybody, unless you're living under a rock, eventually would hear about it. These are the ones where, like, you know, they're touching on every issue that it could really help you in, in a procedural question that comes up or discovery dispute that needs to be resolved. And you're the one right there with the case hot off the press and the other side is still citing, you know, string citing cases from two decades ago. So keep an eye out for that bottom line. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. We're going to cut it short. Don't need to fill the, the room with hot air. Not any more than we have. So uh, stay tuned for Terry's takes and next week. And we're going to keep our eyes on a few guests and hope to bring some back. So thank you for now. Take care. See you, everybody. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.